Please remain standing for the reading of the scripture, which is from the book of Job, chapter 1, which you can find in your pew Bibles on page 417, or you can follow it on the screen. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 female donkeys, and very many servants, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day, and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them, and he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, It may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth, and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Now there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And there came a messenger to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them. And the Sabaeans fell upon them and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell upon the young people, and they are dead, and I alone have escaped to tell you. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. This is God's word. Please pray with me as we look together at God's word. 
Gracious Father, as we now open your word, our one and foremost desire is to hear from you. We recognize, God, that in this book you speak, that you speak truth, you speak love, you speak mercy to us. And so give us ears to hear, give us eyes to see you, Lord, and give us hearts that are soft and ready to be changed by the truth of your gospel. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you were here last Sunday, you may have noticed that the first couple of rows were filled up with a bunch of the uh, uh, be the Koenigsman family. Uh, Carissa's family was in town, uh, 11 of them. Uh, and so we had a, a big old party for a few days. And and most of that time was taken up with your traditional New England sightseeing. You know, we, we did the whole whale watch thing and the duck boat thing and all of those kinds of things. And we played games and bantered a bit and ate a lot of food. Uh, but on Thursday of that week, we took a special moment in the afternoon to go and visit our daughter Ruby's grave in Natick. Uh, it was a first chance to see the new headstone that had been uh, installed there. And most of you know that um, we were expecting a child this month. Um, and last March, we uh, lost that baby about 18 weeks of pregnancy. And when we got back to uh, the house, uh, Carissa's sister had given us uh, really what I think was one of the most housewarming, most precious housewarming gifts we could have received. It's this picture here uh, that will go on the wall as soon as the wall gets painted. Um, we just moved into a, a new home. But you see there, and it's kind of a, a family portrait of sorts. Um, the birds in the trees, the two uh, bigger birds are, are you know, representative of Carissa and me, and the four smaller ones are Joshua and Mariah and Eva and Chloe. And the, uh, the three ones... The three that are flying away are the ones that we've lost to heaven, including our ruby. So I, I share that story this morning, not because it's unique. And I share it precisely because it's not unique. Because every single one of us has a story of loss and grief, a story where uh, God does something in our lives that doesn't make any sort of sense, you know, the kind of loss, you know, it takes all sorts of shapes. You know, perhaps it's the loss of a job when your company takes a different direction or the loss of our health as we get older, the loss of a loved one through illness, the loss of our dignity uh, if someone discriminates against us, the loss of our innocence when someone takes advantage of us. And, and so our world is filled with this kind of aching loss. And as Christians, there's another often uh, deeply troubling layer to our loss. And that is this, that we believe in a good and loving and powerful God who sovereignly rules the universe. A God who promises good to his people who numbers our hairs and doesn't let a sparrow fall to the ground apart from his watch. And, and so when we experience that kind of suffering or pain, 
it inevitably drives us to ask honest questions, not just about our own situation, but questions about our God. The kind of questions that often lead us to the book in front of us this morning, the book of Job. Uh, This is the story of one man's devastating loss and the struggle to make sense of God in the midst of it. Now, you read this, and and on the one hand, Job's story doesn't feel very applicable uh, to us, because who among us can really compare either our suffering or our righteousness to Job? Uh, I mean, here is the supremely righteous man who sustains the most extreme calamities. And yet, as uh, Old Testament scholar John Walton observes, though the book does engage in extremes, it is not trying to minimize anyone else's suffering in comparison. For suffering cannot be measured objectively. Regardless of where anyone's experience fits on the spectrum of pain and suffering, we are all prone to ask the same questions. Why me? Why Ruby? Why would God let something like this, whatever this is, why would God let something like this happen to anyone, let alone to his people? Why doesn't he answer? Where is he? Where is God when the world falls apart? As Job declares in chapter 23, Oh, that I knew where I might find him, that I might even come to his seat. I would lay my case before him and fill my mouth with arguments. I would know what he would answer me. I would understand what he would say to me. But he can't find him. Where is God when the world falls apart? And so this book resonates both with our experience of suffering and the searching questions that that suffering generates. As another author puts it, it is a staggeringly honest book. A book that knows what people actually say and think. Not just what they say publicly in church. It knows what people say behind closed doors and in whispers. And it knows what we say in our tears. What we might find surprising, though, when we read it, is that Job doesn't exactly answer all of the questions that we bring to it. Uh, Perhaps the most common questions we go looking to, to solve in these pages are the problem of evil and the cause of suffering. You know, how can a loving and powerful God allow evil to exist on earth, let alone let his children experience it? And and, and so where does this suffering come from? Why do people suffer? Why does God do this? Those are some of the most common questions we ask in this book. But if those are the main questions we're after in this book, our search will largely be in vain. Because Job doesn't answer all of those questions. It's not because those are unimportant questions. Uh, they are very honest and very real but they may not be as important as some other questions that God wants us to ask, questions that Job actually does raise and answer through the course of the book. In fact, we can summarize this book in a series of five questions, which we'll be looking at over the next five weeks. 
The first is, do we worship God merely because of what we get out of it? Do we worship God merely because of what we get out of it? This is the accuser's question in chapter 1, verse 9. Does Job fear God for no reason? The second, wouldn't it be better to have never lived than to face such misery? Why did I not die at birth, cries Job in chapter 3. That's Job's question of raw pain and lament. Three, can the righteous suffer? Can the righteous suffer? Who was it, who that was innocent ever perished? Asked Job's friends. This is the subject of the debate that they have with Job about the cause of suffering. Can the righteous suffer? Number four, is God righteous when the righteous suffer? This is Job's big question. And it's a question that God finally answers when he speaks later in chapters 38 to 41. And then number five, is there mercy for those who speak folly? Is there any recourse when we make wrong assumptions and wrong assertions about the character of God? And that's the question that's answered in the final chapter. And so all of these questions come together that kind of outline the overall flow of the book of Job, and they work together to kind of ask and answer that overarching question, where is God when the world falls apart? And we're going to explore each of these five questions over the next five weeks, and today we start with the accuser's question, which is really the springboard for the entire saga of Job. Do we worship God merely because of what we get out of it? Do we worship God merely because of what we get out of it? So if you look at chapter 1 with me, first chapter of Job, the story starts off really with life as it was meant to be. So chapter 1, verses 1 through 3 again. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, who feared God and turned away from evil. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and very many servants, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. So here we meet a man who is described as basically one of the godliest and wealthiest people ever to live, at least certainly in his day in terms of his wealth. He was the greatest of all the people of the East. Now, when that day was, when the story of Job occurs, we're not told. We're not exactly sure. Um, Most people think that Job lived somewhere around the time of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the time of the patriarchs in the early uh, portions of Genesis. And uh, the book was probably written a lot later than that. But Job probably lived during that time, best guess. Um, the fact that he doesn't appear to be an Israelite and, and that you don't see things like the tabernacle or the law of Moses or other things we would expect to see if his story occurred later are some of the reasons people think that, that this is really a very early story of God's people. But it does appear to be a true story. That is, Job really did exist. This is not a fable. Uh, Job's faith and perseverance are mentioned in the book of Ezekiel, in the Old Testament, and in the book of James, in the New. 
They look back on his story as, as a true story of one man's incredible faith and perseverance. And, and so as the author introduces us to Job here, he focuses on two things about him. His character and his wealth. His character and his prosperity. Uh, Job is described as blameless and upright. One who feared God and turned away from evil. That is pretty high praise of someone, uh, especially when it comes not only from the narrator, but from God himself later in verse 8. This is exactly how God describes Job as well. And so what does that mean? Uh, Sometimes we read a word like blameless and we think it means like sinless, like he never, ever, ever did anything wrong whatsoever. Uh, That Job was perfect, as the King James uh, translates it. But that is not what the word uh, means here. And, and if that's what the word means, Job would have actually disagreed with it then because he talks about his own sin in uh, chapter 13 and 14. And so, so rather, uh, one author describes, uh, defines the word like this. He says that the word blameless speaks of genuineness and authenticity, personal integrity, not sinless perfection. So it's the opposite of hypocrisy, pretending to be one thing on the outside but being something else on the inside. So, so what you see is what you really get. And what we see with Job is a man who genuinely fears God and turns away from evil. He recognizes the holiness of God and he treats God the way he deserves to be treated, with reverence and awe and worship. So that's his character. We also learn about his incredible wealth. Uh, the narrator measures it here in terms of offspring and livestock. You know, he's got seven sons and three daughters, ten kids in all. And, and the Bible often uses numbers like seven and three and ten as kind of this picture of completeness. Uh, it's the full family. And, and thousands of sheep and camels, hundreds of oxen and donkeys, many servants. It's a, this is an ancient fortune. This is the good life. But among his character and his wealth, between those two things, the narrator then zeroes in more closely on Job's character. Like he's known for his character, he's known for his wealth, but let me tell you a little bit more about his character as he zooms in in verses 4 to 5, specifically his religious commitment. So verse 4, his sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day. And they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them. And he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of all of them. For Job said, it may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. And thus Job did continually. So we see Job's righteousness, not only in his personal integrity, but in his love for his children and his, and his intercession that he makes on their behalf. Now, we shouldn't uh, uh, read this as though his kids were kind of like frequent party animals and Job is constantly running around trying to clean up after them. Before God has a chance to smite him, I better offer up this sacrifice. That's not the story here. Job's not worried about what they're doing on the outside. He's worried about what's going on in their heart. 
and, and, and he is concerned, and so he makes intercession for them. He, offers, he acts like the family priest and, and offers a sacrifice to the Lord for their sin. This is the good life in ancient terms. An abundant family, a personal fortune, a healthy relationship with God, life as it was meant to be lived, right? Well, when we come to verse 6, the scene changes. And all of a sudden, we find ourselves in heaven, sitting in on what appears to be some sort of divine council meeting. Verse 6. Now, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. That's an interesting story transition. So, a few questions. Who are the sons of God? What are they doing in heaven? And why in the world is Satan there? Well, here Job gives us a unique window into the governance of heaven. God alone is sovereign. He is the only God. He's the creator. Everything else are are creatures. As one scholar puts it, he needs no advice or consultants, but it is his prerogative to discuss his plans with others, as he wills, and to delegate responsibility at his discretion. And so God has chosen to exercise his heavenly rule through heavenly beings created for that purpose, uh, whom the author here calls sons of God. There's some sort of spiritual heavenly being below God, but above people. And some of those heavenly beings are angels. You think of the messenger. The word angel means messenger. So when a heavenly being is sent to give a message to someone on earth, they call them angels. So those are some of the kinds of of heavenly beings. Their their job is to uh, deliver a message on earth. Others operate primarily in the heavenly realm. So you think of Isaiah's vision in chapter 6, where he sees the throne room of God and the seraphim are there. Or you think of the, uh, Revelation 5 and John's vision and the, the four living creatures, these heavenly beings. And so God has this kind of heavenly counsel of his created beings who, who serve him in executing his heavenly rule. And he's holding counsel with them. And in walks Satan. And scholars have debated, is he crashing the meeting or is he actually part of the council? functioning as kind of a a loyal opposition. And, you know, scholars debate it, and it's it's hard to kind of land for sure, but but when you look at the details of the passage, and especially when you look at chapter 2, where he comes among the sons of God, he seems to be included with the sons of God as part of that council. And so what in the world would he be doing there? What function could he possibly play? Well, grammatically speaking, the word Satan here is probably not yet a name. It comes to be a name. But here, it is the Satan. It's a title. It means the accuser, the adversary. So basically, you can think of Satan as the district attorney of heaven. He's the prosecutor who brings charges against people before the court of the Lord to accuse them. Of doing wrong. And so when God asks him in verse 7, where have you come from? He may actually be asking for his report. Do you have any charges to make? 
the accuser says that he's been roaming the earth, presumably looking for someone he might indict. But before he can actually make an accusation, the Lord, very surprisingly, draws his attention to Job. Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? Exactly how the narrator introduced him to us. God says, have you considered Job? And it almost feels like God is daring him to find something wrong with Job. Uh, And maybe he is. I don't think we have to read it that way. He may simply be pointing out to the accuser, you know, there are some people who worship me with a true heart. It it is possible. And and Job is the chief example. But haters are going to hate. And so the accuser does what accusers do. And he takes God's uh, offer of Job and turns it into a challenge. He challenges God that the only reason Job worships him is because of what he gets out of that worship. All of his family and fortune. And so verse 9. Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. Of course he's going to worship you. Look at everything you've given him. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. Here's the question that launches this whole harrowing tale. Does Job fear God for no reason? Does he worship God merely because of what he gets out of it? Prosperity, progeny, protection. It's easy to trust God in times of plenty. What about times of want? Remove those things, Satan says, and you will reveal the true condition of his heart. It's actually a really good question. Do we worship God merely because of what we get out of it? What would be revealed in our hearts if God took everything away? How many of us would pass the test that Job is about to face? The shocking thing is that God accepts the accuser's challenge. Verse 12. The Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. And there are three things that we should note here. First, the Lord has remarkable confidence in Job. Too much confidence that we wouldn't want him to have that kind of confidence in any of us, I don't think. But it's confidence and it's also a concern. Because there's really only one way to vindicate Job and silence his accuser, and that's to let him pass through the fire. Second, we see here something that we see throughout Scripture That suffering is not outside of God's plan. Suffering is not outside of God's plan. Sometimes God accomplishes, accomplishes His plan by rescuing us from suffering. Sometimes He accomplishes it not by rescuing us, but by carrying us through it. And then third, that through, though this, that throughout this test, God remains in absolute sovereign control. 
That's the other thing we see. He permits Satan to test Job, but notice that he puts a restriction on how much he's allowed to do. A restriction Satan has no control over and cannot break. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan is a roaring lion, but he is a lion on a leash. He can do nothing more than God allows him to do according to his sovereign plan. But none of that necessarily makes what happens next easier to swallow. The scene changes once again. We're back on earth in verses 13 to 22. In, in a single day, everything changes for Job. His children are gathered again in their oldest brother's house for a feast. Job is somewhere else. And then the reports start coming. First is news that he's lost his entire herd of, of oxen and donkeys to raiders. And, and before that messenger is done, another one shows up to tell him that all of the sheep are gone. They've been consumed by fire from heaven. And before that servant is done speaking, another one shows up to announce all the camels have been stolen. And before he's done comes the most devastating blow of all, his children. All ten of his children feasting in the house of their older brother when a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house and it fell upon the young people and they are dead. It's like wading along the shore of the ocean and being caught off guard by a crashing wave and before you can find your feet, the next one hits you and then the next and then the next until you just wash up on shore Breathless and defeated. Job lost everything. How will he respond? Verse 20. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. He said, naked I came from my mother's womb. Naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Unbelievable. Absolutely unbelievable. I mean, the faith, the integrity. He is devastated. He responds in deep grief and sorrow. This is not putting a good face on to look good for others in his pain. He tears his robes. He shaves his head. He falls to the ground. All of these acts of bitter mourning and lament. But what does he do when he falls to the ground? He worships. He accepts his lot from God's hand. The Lord gave. The Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Does Job worship God only because of what he gets out of it? Or does Job worship God because he is worthy regardless of his personal circumstances? 
The answer is clear. But the story isn't over. You would think that this would be enough to refute the accuser's accusations, but as chapter 2 begins, the heavenly council is convened again and, and the accuser is at it again. And again, the Lord holds up Job as a model. Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on all the earth? A blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil, he still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. Satan has already been proved wrong once. but He doesn't let up. He comes back with the same charge from a different angle. He says this, skin for skin. All that a man has, he will give for his life. But stretch out your hand and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse you to your face. Job may have passed the first test, but that's just because he's got a high threshold. His threshold will break, and when it breaks, he will curse you. Remove his health, and you will reveal the true condition of his heart. And again, almost beyond belief, God grants his request. Behold, he is in your hand. Only spare his life. So Satan still wears a leash, but his teeth are sharp. Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And he took a piece of broken pottery with which to scrape himself while he sat in the ashes. I mean, it is hard to imagine a lower point in life. Many of us know what it's like to walk closely with God only to experience suffering. I think we all have stories of that in some way. Think of, uh, of Garrett and Julie right now. You know, they'd sold everything literally to move to Haiti and work in an orphanage. And now he's in a hospital trying to figure out if he has cancer or not. That's not how it's supposed to work. And, and so many of us know what it's like to, to walk closely with God, but to experience suffering. Some of us know what it's like to lose all of our worldly possessions, to have everything we own, everything we can call ours, just swept out from under us. Some of us know what it's like to lose children. Some of us know what it's like to live with chronic pain. But who among us have experienced all of that at the same time? This is unspeakable. So how will Job respond? His wife has a suggestion. She has watched, and she has seen more than she can take. And in her only appearance in the book, she, no doubt out of brokenness takes up the accuser's suggestion, actually, in verse 9. Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. And boy, that would be so tempting, wouldn't it? Wow. That's the way out. But listen again to Job's absolutely astonishing response. He said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women would speak. 
Shall we receive good from God? And shall we not receive evil? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. So what do we make of all of this? We'll start with the accuser's question back in chapter 1, verse 9. Does Job fear God for no reason? Do we worship God merely because of what we get out of it? Or is it possible to worship God regardless of whether we receive blessing or disaster from his hand, but simply because he is worthy? Well, the answer here is a very clear yes. It is possible to worship God with unselfish motives. Job has showed us that. And so the question then for us is this. What's my motivation in worshiping God? Do I follow God because I believe that he will make me happy? He will make me happy in this life. Because that's the way to be healthy and successful. Have, have I bought into a version of the prosperity gospel that as though if I follow God, he's going to owe me something for my faith and obedience? Or do I simply worship God because he's worthy? Because he is God and I am not. Would he still be worthy without all of the gifts that he's given me? Now, God loves to give his children gifts and expects that we would enjoy the gifts that he gives us. But what if he took those gifts away? Does my allegiance to God come with conditions? Will I only accept good from his hand but not evil? Or am I willing to say with Job, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. It's a question for us to ponder in our hearts as we walk through this book. God is worthy of our worship, whether we receive blessing or disaster from his hand. But when we acknowledge that truth, that still leads us to ask hard questions about God. If he's worthy, if he's powerful, if he's sovereign and in control and, and loving and good, then why would he do something like that? Why would he entertain Satan's accusations? Why would he give him so much rope? Why would he allow his children to suffer, especially when you think how many people turn their back on God and have it easy in life? And those trying to follow him seem to have such a hard time. But the reality is Chapters 1 and 2 don't answer the why question. They don't answer the why question. In fact, as we'll see, neither really does the rest of the book. And we'll talk more about that in the weeks ahead. But these chapters do answer the where question. Not yet for Job, but very clearly for us. Where is God when the world falls apart? He is on his throne. He's on his throne. And that realization may seem outrageous to some of us. 
You mean to tell me that you could do something about this and you're not? Are you not powerful enough? Are you not good enough? Did you lose control of your heavenly council and they're running amok? But that's not the, the, the scene. That's not the portrait we see. We see here a sovereign creator, unique in power, exclusive in deity, unparalleled in majesty, in complete control, ruling his creation according to plan. And so to recognize that God is on his throne amid our suffering, that can be outrageous to some. But to others, that's a cause for worship. God is on his throne. Right now, in the midst of this, he's on his throne, and I can trust him. Whatever this is, I have hope because the God who holds the entire universe in the palm of his hand has my name engraven right there. He's on his throne. He's on his throne. And for Christians who who are reading Job on this side of the cross, we have an even deeper sense of hope because we know that, that not only is God on his throne in the midst of our suffering, but that Jesus, his son, took his throne by being nailed to a cross. He was crowned king in our place when he suffered for us. Christianity is the only religion in the world where our God knows what it means to suffer. In fact, when we look at the the bigger picture of, of Job's story, the parallels between Job and Jesus are really quite breathtaking. Christopher Ash explains that Job in his extremity is actually but a shadow of a reality more extreme still, of a man who is not just blameless, but sinless, who is not just the greatest man in a region, but the greatest human being in history, greater even than merely human who emptied himself of all of his glory, became incarnate, went all the way down to a degrading, naked, shameful death on a cross, whose journey took him from eternal fellowship with the Father to utter aloneness on the cross. The story of Job is a shadow of the greater story of Jesus Christ. And so we grieve with Job when the world falls apart. We don't minimize the severity. And as we'll see next week, neither do we muzzle our complaints to God. But we also worship with Job. God is on his throne. Shall we receive good from his hand and not evil? God is worthy of our worship, whether we receive blessing or disaster from his hand. Let's pray. God, as we look into your word and as we hear your voice, we recognize that you alone know the true story of every heart. You know the pain that we carry, the questions that we ask, the doubts, the fears, 
hurt. Would you minister to us wherever we are? And would news that you are on your throne be good news? That we have a God who is in sovereign control. We may not know why, but we do know where to find you. We praise you for that this morning. And we praise you that you have proven your goodness and your sovereignty by sending your son Christ to take our pain, our suffering, every tragedy we experience, to take it and fold it into himself and his story, his life poured out on the cross that we might live with him. We praise you. We pray for hearts of true worship. In Jesus' name, amen.